1: Your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest, coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, then talk about them. Today, my usual co-host, John Flack, cannot be here with us, but very familiar voice, and you're in good hands here. You're with Brian Fry today. Brian, how are you doing, man?
0: Oh, I'm good, man. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm glad to have you back and in the fold. And you know who else is here? This is a great lineup, I should say, because we've got Andrew Newman from Palm Springs, California, where the architecture is beautiful, the sun feels good, and uh, the movie critiques are also good. How's it going, Andrew?
2: Pretty good out here in Long Beach, California. But I appreciate oh. the uh,
1: <laughs> swing I, and a miss.
2: I appreciate the uh, shout out there. And uh, I do have to say, the architecture in Palm Springs is amazing.
1: I. Blended Palm Beach and Palm Springs together. I'm leaving that in. It's okay. I don't care if people know I messed up. (laughs) I think it's great. Keep going. (laughs) So today, we got a great movie. We got a great guest. So let's get to know this guest a little bit. Andrew, are you ready for some hard-hitting, deeply intensive personal questions that are going to let the viewer into your life?
2: Oh, definitely. Always.
1: Okay. What is the hardest you've ever laughed in a movie?
2: Something 43. Uh, Movie 43? Movie Forty Three, and while there's, it's a this movie that has a bunch of vignettes uh, with tons of great actors in it. But there's one specific scene where Hugh Jackman has testicles on his chin, and that scene made me laugh so hard in the movie theater. Uh, living out here in California, I'm able to go see movies before they're released sometimes, and I actually saw that about six months before it came out in theaters. And the entire theater just laughs so hard seeing Hugh Jackman with testicles on his chin.
1: So this is a sight gag then, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's the, like, that's what it is. is his chin is testicles.
1: I haven't seen this movie. I'm curious to see it, not just for obviously chin testicles, but more so for uh, also just because there's, the short vignettes that have lots of stars in it. That sounds interesting.
2: It, there's tons of other things in that movie that are hilarious it's just that that is the one that sticks out but i know there's another one that if i start thinking about it uh, that is pretty up there too it's it's got some really good if you want to laugh hard it's a good thing to see this is also the second
0: podcast in a row that Hugh Jackman's been brought up i mean basically a god at this point right
1: fry what about you man
0: it's the uh it's the segment in the credits of superbad where it shows all of the d- that uh <laughs> that he had been drawing. He talks about having that uh, affliction where he's like, I couldn't touch pen to paper without drawing a dick. And it was this montage of dick of d- pictures. It still makes me laugh. But I was like, <laughs> it was a funny movie anyway, but my abdomen hurt so bad from laughing through the whole movie and then this montage of pictures that he had drawn. And yeah, that slayed me.
1: Uh, drawings of penises will do it for you. That's a
2: that's a stereotypically guy answer, but it really was funny. So between the two of us, we've gone with veiny penis drawings and chin testicles. Ross, what do you have?
1: Hardest laugh in a movie for me. It's going to sound pretty PG compared to that, but it was Rat Race, man. The uh, air-controlled tower, when the car gets pulled up, the air-controlled tower, and it's one long gag of this jeep that they try and pull down in an air control tower and the, the jeep get, ends up getting pulled up the tower instead it's seth green and i actually don't remember the other guy's name right off the top of my head but uh really funny stuff and the guy has his tongue infected from a piercing so he can't talk so uh, it's 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 comedy gold I, I laugh so hard my sides actually hurt in the theater so
2: i haven't seen that movie
1: oh I hope I didn't spoil a a really good moment in it. Uh, No, 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 no,
2: no, 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 that, no, the exact opposite. You encouraged me to want to, to want to check it out.
1: Okay. That's good. Uh, I do recommend it. Valentine's Day is close though. And what is the best couples movie to rewatch for you and Lisa, Andrew? Uh,
2: True romance. Uh, Okay. So when uh, Quentin Tarantino first got started, he had written two scripts Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. The director of True Romance, I'm forgetting his name, he's pretty famous. He met Tarantino and he read both scripts and he said, hey, I wanna buy both of these and make them. And Tarantino said, no, you get to pick one. You make that, I'm gonna take the money from that and make the other one. He picked True Romance and it's got an amazing cast. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, James Gandolfini, Christopher Walken has a great scene in there uh i'm forgetting so many like brad pitt's in there uh like the, the the cast is amazing and uh tarantino always gets asked if he's going to make like a romance movie and he always says i did i wrote true romance
1: you had me at christopher
0: walken I'll also toss in Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, and Gary Oldman, who all had amazing parts in that movie.
2: Thank you. And it was Dennis Hopper who was... So Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken have just one of the all-time amazing scenes together in that movie. And it's about the history of Moorish occupation in Italy.
1: What movie did you see because you had to or like were pressured into seeing... Maybe you didn't want to see this movie, but then you found out... This movie's good. In fact, I love it. Smiley face. It's got Anna Faris. Uh,
2: It's a stoner movie. And I know that that doesn't sound like something you'd have to twist my arm into seeing. But it wasn't one of those things that it was described well beforehand. It was just like, watch this movie and kind of like forced to watch it. You know, I wasn't really told beforehand. And at first, the way it starts off, I couldn't tell if I was going to like it. And
1: it is fantastic.
2: Highly recommend smiley face.
1: It was in your wheelhouse and you didn't know it.
2: Yes.
0: The uh, guilty pleasure, now guilty pleasure, at the time I was drugged to it, but uh, Jess made me go see Pitch Perfect, and I ended up laughing hysterically at it, and it is now one of my biggest guilty pleasures.
1: Wow, that is a guilty pleasure.
0: Also, if Jess ever leaves me, I will be looking up Anna Kendrick with a quickness.
1: (laughs) Okay, and uh, what is the last movie that you saw? The last movie that I saw was Ant-Man and the Wasp because it just came to
2: Netflix and since I missed it in the theaters once I realized it was going to come to Netflix I decided to wait instead of illegally downloading it and watching it that way
1: Wait, it came to Netflix? Yeah. Oh man, I wasted a $1.99 on Redbox. Point and laugh. Oh man, I'll never get that $2 back. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: not only that, but think about it. You had to also the opportunity cost of you having to go to the Redbox, get it, and then take it back to Redbox. Like, it's more than $2, Russell.
1: Oh, this is great. up there with the greatest mistakes of my life that I really have to reevaluate. Oh, <laughs> oh man. I know when I'm in my deathbed, I'm going to look back at that and regret that Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, Redbox rental when I could have had it on Netflix already. Man, anyway... Today, <laughs> today we're gonna do a really good movie, Brian. What movie are we gonna do today?
0: Uh, we are looking at *Coming to America* with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio
3: Hall. That's rad! That's rad, man! That's rad. It's a 1988 movie. It's a comedy here, and
1: this is an unusual comedy in that it was highly successful at the box office. This grossed 128 million dollars domestically in America in 1988. That's a ton of money for a comedy. It placed a third in the box office, coming behind uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in second, and it placing placing ahead of uh, uh, Tom Hanks in Big. What was first? It, Rain Man is the movie.
2: Uh, okay, so real quick on that. Think about that. Rain Man, Big, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Coming to America. Those are if, you, if you pitched any one of those movies... Nowadays like something like one of those movies there's a, no chance one of those movies would finish the year's in one of the top 4 in the box
1: office. I don't think so either. That's interesting. It's a really Yeah, good... there's no
0: superheroes.
1: <laughs> no, but that's just a good point on Andrew's part. These are they, those aren't the kind of movies that are grossing lots of money now. So it's that's a very interesting point.
0: I loved Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
1: And those are all good movies, too, by the way. IMDb gives this a 7.0, so audiences do like it. The critics are a little tough on this and gave it 67% on the Rotten Tomatoes, and the audience score gives it an 85, so they, they come to the rescue a little bit here, and so the people like it. And, uh, you know, for a comedy, it comes away with two surprise nominations for Oscars. It is nominated for Best Costume Design uh, for Deborah uh, Landis and then Best Makeup, which there's a lot of really amazing makeup, which we'll get into later in this movie as well. So Rick Baker was uh, nominated for his his makeup work in here, and it's really impressive. So, guys, tell us, tell the people at home, had you seen this movie before? When was the last time you saw this movie? What were your thoughts coming back into it now? Andrew? I actually kind of want to let... Fry kick this off if that's okay. So
0: I did not realize something going into watching this movie afresh. I've seen this movie several times before. It had been probably 10 plus years since I had seen it last. But what I realized very, very quickly is I've never seen this movie uncensored. Uh, (laughs) I have watched it on USA, TNT, TBS, like whatever it was on, on television I had no idea the actual movie I was missing. It's like somebody going in and watching bad boys with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith on syndicated television. And it's just a different movie at that point because yeah, you, you miss a whole lot. So anyway, uh, somewhere around um, the Royal penis is clean. I was like, Oh my God, this is a completely different movie.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I have some. Some does have a similar takeaway, but uh, Andrew, go ahead, man. Okay, so uh, I'm pretty certain that I either saw
2: this movie in theaters when it came out, or very shortly on video with my family when it came out. And the reason why, uh, well, one, because my we love Eddie Murphy, and I'm certain that we like I've seen this movie a million times. But two is relating specifically to the scene of the topless women, I'm pretty sure that my mom put my, her hands over my eyes during that scene. <laughs> Don't because look at you. Because I would have just turned seven. <laughs> that explains I, a lot. I love it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I hadn't actually watched it again in probably at least a decade but that's saying watching it all the way through. It's one of those movies that you know, when you're like on vacation somewhere and you're flipping through all the channels in the hotel room, right? And you're like, "Oh, this sucks. This sucks." And it's like, "Oh, Coming to America's on." So you watch like 15 minutes of it. So I'm pretty sure I've seen 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. I I remember sometime in the last year that the uh, scene with Samuel L. Jackson of uh explicitly watching that scene and then being like okay that scene's over now i can go
1: (laughs) you know i have a similar statement on that i had actually never seen this movie from cover to cover or from start to finish and um it's not a book i don't know why i said cover to cover but uh i had only seen it in pieces through comedy central it's a much better movie than i realized like fry i didn't know that it had all the profanity and other good uh Parts of the movie that I was missing. So it's a much better movie when you see it as it was intended to be seen.
2: I I was going to say, even beyond that, though, uh, and the reference that I think that would have been most appropriate for I is uh, quoting Barney Stinson when he says, it's like watching The Breakfast Club on TBS. Like, that's what that's what the issue is. Right. Except mm -hmm. I would argue that coming to America actually holds up much better. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a much better movie in full. But it's still really funny without all of the, you know, without being oh, up. It's still a no, hilarious
0: movie. I, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, like I said, I've watched on multiple channels. The, the shock and awe for me was more that I had watched this movie so many times and never seen the actual cut. Like, that was what blew me away, was like, wow, you know, I felt like I was. Not a, necessarily an aficionado on the movie, because like I said, it had been a while since I'd seen it. But I've watched this movie several times and could quote some of it.
1: So it was you're like a virgin moment.
0: Yep. Touched for the very first time.
1: And on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into spoiling this. So here to give us a little bit of insights is somebody else
3: who came to America. Hello, I am Zernap. I have come to the Great Land of America. I truly love it here in this wonderful place. I love the long meat with corn on it mounted on stick from Carnival. My number one favorite thing here in America is the Retro Movie Roundtable. You can listen to it for free on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And you can help the show by giving it a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the show on Facebook, email RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. I still have so much to learn about this country. Like, why do you crush such nice cars at monster truck rallies? why are people so excited about ice rink in town in my land whole city is ice rink also why do you put chewing gum under the chairs on the bus do you suspect that they will want it later is it like need to penny take penny at gas station so tell your friends and family and loved ones about the retro movie round table it's great to hear from our, our new friend
1: from abroad and, and new new to this country so pretty cool to hear from him andrew do you want to tell us about Coming to America? Refresh our memories. What what happened in this movie?
2: First off, the plot really is pretty simple. And honestly, I would say the plot isn't the point of the movie. Uh, the point of the movie is the comedy that ensues in each scene, as opposed to the plot's just there to move things along. We have Prince Akeem from Zamunda, and we start off with literally seeing that he has people even wiping his butt, he can't get any peace and he has every single thing done for him. And it is the day of his 21st birthday and he is supposed to be set up in an arranged marriage. When he finally gets to the wedding ceremony, the bride basically can't think for herself. All she can say is whatever you want. So he convinces his father to visit the world. So he decides to go to America and he's got 40 days. He goes to America and he just settles on Queens And what he decides is that he doesn't want to marry the woman his parents have set up for him. He wants to find a new bride. So he finds the worst, dingiest apartment that he can with his partner in crime, Cindy, aptly played by Arsenio Hall. They move into a really, really bad apartment. They get a job at McDowell's, which is a (laughs) McDonald's ripoff. And he ends up meeting... uh, the daughter of the owner, Lisa McDowell, and he ends up falling in love with her. She has a boyfriend, played by Eric LaSalle of ER fame. He is uh, the son of the owners of Soul Glow, which is a Jerry Curl uh, product. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not not having ever used Jerry Curl product, I'm not quite sure if I'm using the correct terminology. Yes. So what, <laughs> what ends up really moving things along is Lisa and Akeem go on a date, and when they get back to Akeem's apartment, it turns out that Arsenio Hall has bought lots of expensive stuff, is very unhappy because he doesn't want Lisa to know that he is wealthy. He wants her to like him for who he is. When he gets rid of all of the stuff, this causes Arsenio Hall to ask for money, which causes Akeem's parents to come, which uh, come and find him, And this sets up the climax of the movie, in which case Lisa's father now really likes Akeem because he's so rich. And Lisa feels betrayed that Akeem did not tell her the truth of who he was. The movie ends with us being back in Zamunda and Akeem goes down the aisle. And when he flips up the veil, it's Lisa there to marry him.
1: Well done. Well done. Happy ending. And James Earl Jones gets out of the doghouse.
2: <laughs> Get into it. Yeah. What do you guys want to talk about?
1: So, the uh, first thing I want to mention is Andrew's right. This movie is not so much about the plot, it's what you would call performance comedy. It's, so, there's sometimes writer's comedy where it's about like the situations and like one thing leads to another. And it's about the one, two, three of the comedy. But this is really about the performer. And Eddie Murphy is such a strong comedic performer. This movie's built around Eddie. And I thought that was a really good thing that you mentioned earlier about it's not so much about the plot because it's actually a pretty simple rom-com or fairy tale retold in modern day or 1988 modern day New York
2: Queens. Totally agree. That's where you find a wife. The thing I would say though that's that's a a touch underrated there is I think that Arsenio Hall also did some really great job because you know he he has a couple uh, cost costume changes and plays a couple parts also,
1: right? Definitely. Yes, he does. It's, and, uh, it's not just Eddie Murphy. Right, right. And uh, Eddie Eddie doing this inspired Arsenio, and he just like got into it more and more himself. And so uh, that infectious nature of... I mean, Eddie was so good on Saturday Night Live playing these different characters and stuff like that. It is the world that he had come out of. And even though he's probably, I think, four years past his departure of Saturday Night Live at this point, maybe three, uh, he... He clearly has come out of that. And I think this movie in particular, along with other movies later, like Nutty Professor, uh, show his ability to do those multiple roles so well. Eddie Murphy wrote this movie. And that's pretty cool because uh, Arsenio Hall, I saw an interview on the internet on uh, YouTube, and uh, Arsenio Hall mentions that Eddie was literally writing this out of dating frustrations in real life. And he thought how nice it would be if you, since he was famous and rich and everybody knew who he was, if women didn't know that he was a star, and as the line says in the movie, he wants a woman to love him for who he is, not what he is and what he has. Pretty cool that he not only stars and carries this movie, but he's, he's the writer. He's the creator of this. I don't know. What do you think on this one, Brian, and the, the, the screenplay and this discussion? Martin?
0: I think it's fantastic. I mean, this is one of the movies that like before I was going to movies thinking, Oh, I'm going to go see a comedy. Oh, I'm going to go see this, you know, before I was really classifying things, I remember this movie, which, you know, just means that I saw it at a very young age and that's why it was something I always tuned into and it's always nice when you find something like that where it doesn't matter what time it is or what channel it's on you're just like oh I'm going to stop and I'm going to watch this so it really speaks to his skill and you know obviously he's a really funny guy I grew up in a weird Eddie Murphy time where he was doing Nutty Professor and more PC stuff. So it was almost a culture shock thing for me to go back and listen to his 80s standups and watch 80s movies where it was a lot different. And honestly, I like him better
1: because he can do different things.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a different range. It's kind of like Ice Cube doing a, uh, you know nanny movie or something it's just like oh i don't want to
2: be shot at so i'm going to do this so yes he create uh he created it but he's not cre- credited with the screenplay I believe that what happened is he created the idea right right and he created essentially what were going to be scenes but i think then he had they had two professional writers in terms of writing the words for everybody else
1: that's right that is correct
2: I want to, uh you know make it sound like we were saying that he was got the screenplay credits because I don't believe
1: he did no he did not do that uh, you're right I but he did help create it oh yeah it's his it's his it's his movie
2: from start to finish
1: in the movie uh, Hakim wakes up to orchestral music every day he gets bathed by uh, beautiful women uh, he is uh, he has his own butt wipe for him he has rose bears drop uh, roses at the feet of him every step he takes. Uh, he eats at a table that's so big he has to talk on an intercom to his dad at the other end of the table, which I don't know about you guys, but this reminds me of 1989 Batman, the dating scene between Ken Basinger and Michael Keaton. And uh, he gets martial arts training. He seems to have friends to just play polo with on command. What do you think about this life in Zamunda? It's over the top, isn't it?
0: The one of the weird things for me rewatching this movie is Arsenio Hall comes in to play polo. Eddie Murphy is dressed to play polo. And then they end up martial arts fighting.
1: Okay, it's I was like, gonna say hey. this for yeah, I was gonna say yeah. this for later. But did they delete a polo scene that <laughs> or something? I, I don't know. It just it was one of the things that just jumped out at me. It's like oh, they're gonna play polo, or something completely different. No, they're, <laughs> you're, they're gonna do judo and martial uh, like an MC Hammer pants.
3: Oh
1: oh oh oh. So we've, we're starting to talk about the performers here a little bit. Uh, Brian, why don't you walk us to the cast real quick?
0: So first you have Eddie Murphy. He pray, plays the title character, which is Prince Akeem, but he also plays several other characters in the movie, which is one of the more fun things about watching the credits. Uh, you have Arsenio Hall as his best friend, Simi. Uh, you have James Earl Jones as King Joff, his father. Uh, John Amos plays Cleo McDowell, Lisa's father and uh, Akeem's boss when he comes to America. Madge Sinclair is the queen. We have uh, Shari Headley as Lisa McDowell, uh, who is the main love interest. We also have Paul Bates, who's one of my favorite characters on this as Oa.
3: She's your queen.
2: (laughs) We have, uh, hold on, stop right there. His performance there was amazing. He does that so well. And it's not like he just does it for like two seconds. He just owned the song the whole time. He, he's amazing. The entire
0: wedding sequence at the beginning of that was fantastic. I It actually added to the already fairly standard, like, I'm trapped by this, but the entire wedding sequence, sequence of him talking to his new bride, him talking to James Earl Jones, and just, like, words against a wall was really important for the whole movie. Just to quickly continue on, we got Eric LaSalle as Daryl Jenkins, that's uh, Lisa's boyfriend, and the glow, uh, Soul Glow rep. Uh, Frankie, E.R. Man from E.R. I'm one of those, like, five people that never watched that show, so...
1: I'm one uh, of the other five people who would watched watch that show. <laughs> we have two of five people
0: that have never watched that show right <laughs> here on this podcast. Um, Frankie...
3: Uh, he's the landlord. <laughs> That's a big also, sigh
0: Also one of my favorite people Frankie Fajan. Uh I don't know if you guys have ever watched the show Banshee But he plays The kind of over the hill Boxer that helps the Protagonist out uh, Fantastic show if you ever get a chance uh, We also have so You uh, watch special-
2: Banshee but you don't watch ER
0: Yeah because it's way better Than ER <laughs> And I've seen neither So <laughs> Uh, a <laughs> couple other uh, honorable mentions we got Louie Anderson in this good to see him in a movie again uh, just because yeah, hadn't watched much with him in it recently and it was like oh man I love that guy uh, we also have uh, Samuel Jackson as the hold up man really enjoyed that so we have Eddie Murphy playing about four parts you've got Arsenio Hall playing about four parts and then you have all these other people that are just fantastic at their job so Hats off to the cast of this movie.
2: I'd like to jump in on the uh, Samuel L. Jackson part because my first thought on re-watching this movie is this is the only time I will get to see the donkey from Shrek beating up Mace Windu. <laughs>
1: That's true. I didn't think about that. Zach, was I, this?
0: What, here, here's a question for the, the listening audience. Was this the first movie that Samuel L. Jackson got to drop into MF?
1: I don't know, that that is a good question. Uh, if you if you have an answer to that, write to us on our Facebook page. Uh, I would be curious to know if that is his first MF. So So this is a really amazing movie for Eddie Murphy, as we mentioned, four rules. So he also did Clarence the Barbershop Owner, which I love this character. I mean I I honestly could have used more Clarence the Barbershop owner. I don't know about you guys.
0: I think if they ever did a spinoff movie, it just needed to be that barbershop.
2: I'm pretty sure there's some deleted scenes because I'm pretty sure that I knew somebody that actually owned the movie and, you know, where it like has the deleted scenes because I'm pretty sure there's more stuff with him.
1: I got the most ghetto DVD of this ever that had no features. It like literally had like a list of credits that you could scroll through, which is at the end of the movie anyway, and I don't know who that helps. But this movie had nothing else on the DVD. and it's super not remastered either, I might add. Everything looked washed out, <laughs> like the beginning scenes of how beautiful Zumunda is. It's like, wow, it's remarkably gray and neutral.
2: I just want to say one on the barbershop thing, could, uh, since we were there, the conversation about boxers. Yes. I absolutely loved when he goes, Rocky Marciano. Anytime we get talking about boxers, white guy always has to bring up Rocky Marciano. He goes, (laughs) but he did beat Joe Lewis. I heard Joe Lewis is 123 (laughs) years old. (laughs) i had a guy on the chair
0: the other day he told me you know joe lewis he said he won 23
1: (laughs) that whole thing was fantastic so eddie's not only playing one character in that he's playing hakeem's there so he's two characters and in addition to that he's playing an old jewish white man named saul in the barber shop which this is great too uh saul is hilarious like my first thought when i saw this guy was like something's off about this guy and I got pretty far along before I realized, like, the skin's kind of, like, pale and, like, not really lifelike or whatever. But it fooled me long enough to be like, what's up with this guy's face? And I didn't realize that was Eddie Murphy. It's all Eddie Murphy. Yeah, it is Eddie Murphy. So it's, it, <laughs> it, it was convincing enough to make me not think it was him. And part of that's just his performance is so good as a Jewish man.
2: Russ, on the dating scene at the bar... You know, like when Met All the Women at the Bar? Yes. You did realize that was Arsenio Hall, right?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Okay, just making sure. It's credited in the movie as, like, (laughs) if you read the credits, it says, unattractive female club goer. (laughs) (laughs) Preferences are subjective, Russ. (laughs) uh, And then one more big Do you like steak? (laughs) I just want to eat you all up. And your friend, too. (laughs) (laughs)
2: you guys are getting close to getting me to hyena
1: i I, know i I
0: love the fact that in this movie you literally had this like interview process for women like people were just sitting down saying all right here's what's up like i don't know how many bars you guys have been to in total but how many times do you sit down and you just have like a, a battery of women come up and be like, let me tell you about myself.
3: I need a man who can please me and not just for a couple of hours. <laughs> I mean,
2: Fry, I have a full head of hair, so I have that happen all the time.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm somewhere between. I'm somewhere between Brian and you. And that that seems like it's painful at the moment. So. Um, <laughs> I, just, uh, I like the satellites to see me on a sunny day. <laughs> and the other Eddie Murphy role that's really great, and this is the you know the lead singer of Sexual Chocolate, the soulful oh. band of Randy Watson. <laughs> Which this might be the most convincing of all of the makeup jobs I did. Again, I could tell it was Eddie by his voice, but I mean, it really does not look like Eddie. I love the preacher. Yeah, Eddie's the preacher, also, right? Yeah. No, that's Arsenio. Oh, oh, that was uh, okay. Yeah, Reverend, Reverend Brown is Arsenio Hall.
0: That was. That's on this, like when he has to pray to him he's like, I know that Jesus is out there. <laughs> there is a God. I
2: there is a God. God. Ladies, <laughs> turn around. There is a
1: God. <laughs> And uh, so, and then Arsenio is also the uh, the other man in the barbershop shop with the big, big, thick glasses and the white beard and the really dark skin. He's also a huge ad in that scene. And you're right, uh, Andrew. You mentioned that Arsenio is a big part of this movie as well. He this movie wouldn't be very good if Simi wasn't there for Akeem to be going through this adventure with. And so it's really cool that you know you've got these two guys together, and. Uh, they're both playing multiple roles and stuff like that. It's a huge selling point to the movie to me, and it was for the producers as well. So, um, I did think it was funny that Eddie Murphy said he was 21 years old in it. I think
2: I, th- I think that's probably because you know how long he'd been successful at that point.
1: Oh, and he is he is on fire at this point. He, like I said, he leaves SNL in '84. And so he goes on to do Forty Eight Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop One and Two, and then he has the amazing stand-up comedy special of Eddie Murphy Raw in nineteen eighty-seven, the year before this. So th- he this is peak Eddie Murphy. He has been dominating in the eighties, and uh, you know he's at the top of his game here. So.
2: And at the same time, wasn't uh, the Cosby Show number one? If not, it was one of the top five shows, right?
1: Yeah. So we're talking about the cast here a little bit. I thought it was interesting. Eddie Murphy on several occasions said that he would read or hear in interviews and stuff like that. that this is the highest grossing black comedy. And he's he'd constantly say it's kind of funny because you know, coming to America would have three times the grossing of whatever the other movie that they were talking about. But it's funny that people never considered coming to America black comedy. But if you go down look at the cast list, it's almost entirely black actors. And so uh, he's got a good point. It, it, something about this doesn't feel like it's only for black people it extends to everybody so i don't
2: view black comedies as just for black people i don't view white comedies as just for white people because i don't think super bad is only for white suburban kids right just in the same way coming to america friday uh so many you know like that we we can just list so many they're not just for people of that race or ethnicity, they're for everybody. And I think that coming to America is just a fantastic example of that. Like I've always viewed it as a black comedy just because of how many black actors are in it, but I've always viewed it as one of the best comedies of all time, period.
1: Well, in the words of uh, Tyler Perry, hallelujah.
2: Okay, so I will. I would be willing to argue Personally, I am have a hard time with the Tyler Perry stuff.
1: <laughs> That's where I was going with this. Um, yeah. <laughs> what was it? DeAndre Black has like, man, it's tough being black. You got to see every Tyler Perry movie three times. <laughs> <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. is the boy getting his hair cut in the uh, barbershop. And it's kind of a shame because he had a scene cut that where he actually got to speak uh, he doesn't have any money to pay for his haircut, so Clarence angrily just like takes out of the buzz cutter and like cuts a huge patch out of the boy's hair and tells him to get out of there. Why is this not in the movie? You
2: know what would have been so much better? No, what is if Clarence had said, "Show me the money."
1: Oh, that would have been Ooh. good. <laughs> <laughs> that that was about
0: seven years too early for that <laughs> quote.
1: One of my favorite pieces here that uh, uh, Fry did not mention also is that we have Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy, who are Mortimer and Randolph Duke from a previous Eddie Murphy and John Landis directed movie, Trading Places. And so oh. I love I love that movie. And to see the rich people who end up falling on hard times at the end of that, uh, having all their money taken away from them after they try to scheme uh, Eddie Murphy and uh, Dan Aykroyd's character, it's funny to see the crossover into this year as Hakeem like, hands them a wad of money, feeling sorry for them. And they're back.
0: Thanks for snagging my look for this.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, I really love trading places. Anything I can do to get you guys to watch movies regarding like stock market and future prices trading, I'm totally down for.
1: Andrew's an economist. We didn't mention this.
2: That's
0: why we need to do Hot Shots
2: Part 2. I loved you in Wall Street. So what do we think about John Landis, the director, Andrew? I'm torn because when I look at his IMDb, I'm like, my God, he started out on just one heck of a run and casting Eddie Murphy for Trading Places was amazing. And then, you know, there's the quote by Eddie Murphy that's like basically after that, landis had like three bombs in a row and eddie did what you just mentioned which is one of the greatest like i would say that eddie and tom cruise are basically up there for like the two best runs in a short period of time of movies i mean i'm sure there's a couple other people but they're both on this short list and that's what you're talking about eddie hired john landis for this movie and I feel like that Landis got more credit for it than he probably deserved. Because on rewatch, he overdirected it.
1: Okay, he overdirected it. Tell, tell me more on that. Why, why do you say he's overdirecting?
2: That f- opening scene, if it was done by a director nowadays, would have been almost, I, I want to say around half the time.
1: Okay, so you're saying that he doesn't have much discipline in terms of editing.
2: At least not in this, at the, particularly at the very beginning of it. What I got from re-watching it and really thinking about it in that you know perspective was he was jealous of Eddie in the sense of that he wanted to make sure he had his stamp on it. So he did some scenes that took too long and that took away from Eddie's screen time. The whole point of what you said earlier about we should have had more barbershop stuff. I'm pretty sure they shot more barbershop stuff. It's just that Landis wanted to take too long on the first part of some of his stuff and we didn't get enough editing.
1: Interesting. I think I see a trend of where you might say uh, some change one thing later. But uh, Brian, how do you feel about uh, John Landis's oversight on this movie?
2: I'm going to
0: take it from a career perspective because there are four movies that sum up his career for me. Animal House, Spies Like Us, Coming to America, and Beverly Hills Cop 3. I'm more than willing to fight anybody who says that Beverly Hills Cop 3 wasn't the best one because it was.
1: Oh, we were about to fight then.
0: Oh, let's fight because that I, I loved the alphabet murders. That was my favorite action comedy of its time.
2: Russ, would you at least agree that Beverly Hills Cop 3 is hands down the best third in an action comedy movie ever?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of qualifiers on that, but I, not, yeah, if no, you're hitting me off the top of my head, short.
2: Okay, I'm just trying to
1: make peace between you guys. We oh. don't need fighting. Okay, don't. No, <laughs> it's just, it, it's it's just because there's not no, a bad boy. We because. will fight each other. It will happen after the show. We will meet in the middle of the country at the exact midpoint between us, which is probably somewhere in Indiana or maybe. Illinois. I'll see you in St. Louis. Yes. Fry will beat the
2: soles of your feet with his face. Meet me there at 3 a.m.
1: I will fight you to the death.
0: It's going to be a big, like, grandstand event because, I mean, they don't have an NFL team anymore.
1: No, we can't fight to the death. We need you on the show. Um, So uh, another good one that you pointed out, Fry, you said the four movies that define his career. He's actually got even more than that. Uh, Did you say Blues Brothers by chance?
0: No, he didn't. I didn't like that movie.
1: <laughs> I'm saying the the four movies
0: that that really defined it for me.
1: Okay, and then another really good one that he did, which was completely out of genre, because he's doing mostly comedies here. Uh, he's also got an American Werewolf in London. So
2: thank you. That was what I was going to mention. I was like, really, you didn't mention American Werewolf in London? But I think we we also have to kind of look at Landis's failures if we're going to talk about him. Oh, and there's a lot of those, too.
1: And I mean, and also in addition to that, he is a writer on American Werewolf in London, Clue, the the movie Clue, and, uh, you know, Blue's Brothers 2000. So So,
2: So, so, so you like Blue's Brothers
1: 2000? Sure, why not? Like, I'll take that.
2: Okay, I was going to say, we could get into (laughs) a real long conversation about (laughs) Clue.
1: it's it's okay he's he's done an amazing job he's a high school dropout who uh like he's interesting guy like he said at age eight like he just like he went to a movie with his mom he's like who made that and she goes what do you mean and he's like like who's who's in charge of all of that and his mom told him a director and like he just absolutely fell in love with it and he's like so from age eight he was on a drive to do this and so he actually dropped out in uh, high school and went over to yugoslavia to work on a movie for very little money. And uh, I guess his mom's just like, sure. I don't know about you guys, but my parents wouldn't let me do that. So,
2: I figured that what you wanted to do in high school was start a band called Sexual Chocolate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the spinoff, Sexual White Chocolate. Um,
2: okay, Jason Williams.
1: <laughs> and here's my lead guitarist, Macadamia Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an interesting wrinkle to the creation of this movie. There's a lawsuit... That's pretty interesting here where uh, it's Buchwald uh, versus Paramount. Art Buchwald uh, filed a suit in 1990 against the film's producers. Again, this movie made a ton of money, which can uh, create you can make you a target for such things. But he claimed that he had a 1982 script about a rich, despotic African ruler who comes to America. Paramount did pick up Buchwald's script and Landis was actually set to be the director and Eddie Murphy was the set to be the lead. After two years of installed-out development, Paramount then abandoned the project in March of 85. And so two years after that, in 87, Paramount began working on Coming to America, a story written by and based on uh, Eddie Murphy's writings. So Buckwald uh, actually won breach of contract, and they settled out of uh, court, and he got money. I don't want to diminish any of Eddie Murphy's creativity in this, but there does seem to be a little something. Yes, but first
2: off, like, the first thing you said was despotic. There's nothing that we see from the king of Zamunda that says he's despotic that just sounds like there's pretty much like, you know, like the king, like the royal family in England. Right. Yeah. You know, a little more obvious with uh, as opposed to being the British sense of humor where they hide the fact that, you know, about the washing of the royal penis in Africa, they're a little more upfront. Uh, I did not know about that. You kind of threw me out like you kind of surprised me on that one.
1: No, I mean, I I, I love Eddie Murphy. I think he's a uh, great—and, like, you're right. I think the other part of what Landis said that Eddie had done here was he said it's essentially Cinderella in an interview. He said he took an African prince coming to America looking for his bride. And I think that that's the part of the Buchwald part of the story that wasn't there. I'm not at all wanting to say that Eddie Murphy plagiarized, but the premise was all lined up. The director was there. Eddie was there. And it was two years prior to coming to America.
3: So uh,
1: as uh, Andrew alluded to, Eddie Murphy and John Landis have a huge breakdown in this. They actually enjoyed working with each other on Trading Places, so they were happy to come together. Eddie said that he brought Landis in for this project. And, you know, Landis recalled that there were differences in working with Murphy on the two movies. He said the guy working on Trading Places was full of energy. He was curious and funny, fresh and great. The guy on Coming to America was the pig of the world. And he basically was saying he was an egocentric, you know, argumentative, difficult guy to work with. And uh, I mean, that sounds pretty mean until you hear what Murphy says of Landis, where he says, uh, they had a tussling confrontation. It didn't come to blows, but the personalities just didn't mesh. Uh, he was directing me in Trading Places when I was starting out as a kid, but he was still treating me five years later like a kid during the making of Coming to America. I hired him to direct the movie, and I was going to direct Coming to America myself, but I knew Landis had had three effed up pictures in a row, and his career was hanging by a thread. After the Twilight Zone trial, I figured this guy needed me, and so when we did Trading Places, I gave him a shot. I went out of my way to help this guy. He effed me over, and he got a hit picture on this resume now because of me, and he made over $200 million on a film as opposed to coming off of a couple of effed-up movies, which is where I'd rather see him be right now. So pretty strong language from Eddie Murphy, too. I'm a little curious because
0: he then proceeded to have, like, two other movies with him.
1: Well, yeah, they did Beverly Hills Cop 3. So I guess they got over it. I don't know. I mean... um, Yeah, well,
2: but Beverly Hills Cop 3 was 1993, right? Yes. This was 88. They were already pissed at each other by the time it came out, right? Right. So they went through all of the press junket and everything being nice, because it's both their pocketbooks, but I'm pretty sure all of those quotes came out, say, six months to a year after the movie, you know what I mean, once Oscar season was over.
1: I don't know when these came out and what the settings were, but they were clearly mad at each. I'm thinking that, like, I'm just guessing here, but three years go by, they sit down, they talk to each other. Like I said
2: earlier, Beverly Hills Cop 3 is an amazingly good movie, and we almost never get really good movies as the third movie in something unless it's like Lord of the Rings where the third movie is already set up to be the best, right?
0: Yeah, Fellowship of the Ring was the best movie in that series.
1: Titanic 3 was amazing.
2: (laughs) Cruel Intentions 3. Oh... Oh, 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 wow. We're
0: going uh, deep cuts on this.
2: <laughs> anyway, um,
0: <laughs> I never made it past two. Two is just destructive. Was, it's all downhill. For, it's like Sharknado 6.
1: So, uh, one one thing I wanted to ask <laughs> or uh, bring up about John Lannis was I uh, actually didn't think there was a lot of style in his direction of the movie. So, uh, not to pile on him more like Andrew was doing, but I think that. Other than looking at the globe that then transitions to a map, then transitions to the American flag and then goes to the airport, which was a really nice scene, is that they're carrying like conspicuously like tons of luggage to the airport, saying, like, remember, they can't know I'm royalty. And like they have like a caravan of people carrying their luggage and while they're dressed in like really nice coats. That was the best moment of like style in the movie. I like the Soul Glow commercial, like as they walk down in the street, but I'll be honest with you, I also am with Andrew in that. I didn't think that they did a good job of finding these interesting little rich moments of New York and sticking them in there like if you look at a lot of my favorite comedies such as Animal House that Andrew uh, Landis did there's small stuff going on and it makes the movie a lot more rich for rewatches and I don't see that here per se.
0: I will agree completely uh, with I guess Eddie Murphy's take on this in terms of you know his criticisms because he I don't want to see carries the movie because obviously they're, they're contributing actors like Arsenio who really make this movie great, but there's nothing ancillary about this movie that I really care about. Like it's, it's, it's all about his interactions with the people around him and it makes it fantastic.
2: Well, so one of the reasons why I think that the movie had the success it did and why I mentioned the Cosby show earlier is Well, let's just let's contrast the McDowell's with Friday for a moment. okay? like the McDowell's are upper middle class. You know, they're well to do. And we don't always see that side in black comedies. Right. The so I think that's one reason why it did resonate well is because. In just the realm of the African American community, we see different cult classes of people. We see poor people, we see upper middle class, and then we see the stinking, filthy rich, yeah. right? And I think that's one reason why the movie resonates so well. And as you put it earlier, you don't think of it as a black comedy, you just think of it as a comedy because it demonstrates that class structure that we're oftentimes used to seeing just from an entire, pretty much an entirely black
1: cast. Uh, that that's probably a big part of the reason why you're right. It doesn't get categorized as such, uh, despite the cast. So, I do want to ask you, Brian. What do you think of Zamunda, the palace there?
0: I mean, I know they were uh, under constraints for what visuals they have at the time, but the thing that, upon rewatching, really hit me was at first it looks like Switzerland, and then as they get closer, it looks like India. But at no point in time would I have said, yep, that's an Africa.
2: Africa is a rather massive continent. My point is is that we think of Africa as what we typically see as like one thing or maybe two things. Africa is, diver- is as diverse of a continent, probably even more so than the United States, you know, North America is. So in that sense, I could see it
1: I didn't have any issues with the landscape per se, other than the fact that it didn't it did seem very produced if you know what i mean it, uh the, the fly into the castle was very um i was very aware i was watching a movie if you know what i mean i wasn't fooled but i mean that's that's 80s effects and that's okay yeah. and,
2: um, and fry you do probably have a
1: point about palm trees
2: yeah i mean <laughs> i uh, it just it
0: seemed like they mixed a lot of different things that they thought okay these this makes it look exotic
2: yeah okay so, well it's this a, it's a th- the thing in austin powers when he's like amazing how much this looks like southern california
1: because yeah like, <laughs>
0: right? yeah right and and look i mean i understand that there are mountain ranges in africa that are snow-capped it's not that that is a piece i'm just saying that if they're trying to display a a vibe i just felt like they cut and pasted like four or five things together that don't exist together to make it look exotic
1: so for me the palace and I'm going I'm going to have to again I'm going to put my architecture nerd moment on here. Uh the Zumunda palace is uh, a dark era for architecture for me. It's that 80s postmodern <coughs> eclectic pomp. It's just like the turrets are all different kinds. You got like Middle Eastern turrets with like semicircular domes and it in a pineapple looking kind of thing stuck on top of it. You go inside there's molding everywhere from there's different clashes of different kinds of arches that don't go with everything and that's so 80s postmodernism where they were revolting against modernism and then everyone's like i'm going to take all this old stuff i'm going to put it together and it's not going to be right it's going to be funky it's going to be weird it's going to have lots of splashy colors and the palace does have all these aquamarines and pinks and stuff like that and uh all i can say is i wouldn't want to live in that palace architecturally and uh, here's a fun thing as they're getting out of the JFK airport, uh, you see in the distance over his shoulder, there's an absolutely uh, iconic piece of modern architecture. It's the 1962 TWA flight center designed by Eero Saarinen, which is today a hotel that you can stay at. Uh, and that's my favorite piece of architecture in the movie, not the palace. So,
0: Just in case, uh, I know we uh, talked about Andrew's profession here earlier, but just in case for our listeners, this is a one-off uh, Russell is an architect in case you didn't gather that
2: the greatest second greatest regret of his life, behind the red box was not starting a band called sexual
1: chocolate. Instead,
2: he became an architect.
1: Yeah, that is, that is the second one. That'll be, I will regret that was sexual white
0: chocolate and the macadamia nuts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, what do we, what do we think about uh, Queens? Is uh is this neighborhood crappy enough for you? Well, the funny thing is is their apartments in Brooklyn. It uh, is. This is
0: one of the this is one of those little things where they're like, Oh, by the by.
2: Yeah, but what is it hey, but what does L Cool J say? I represent Queen, uh, I mean, she was raised out in Brooklyn.
0: Well, God, you asked me a question. You didn't give me a chance to answer it. But it she's tour. doing it she was doing it and doing it and doing it well.
1: Eddie asks for a meager apartment, and uh, he gets blood on the walls, caution tape from a murder scene. Uh, there's a body, or there's body tape on the floor from a murder victim and a dog murder victim as well. And the and uh, there's rats in the apartment, litter all over the ground, uh, nasty mattress shoved in the corner.
2: The biggest issue with any movie or any TV show shot in New York or San Francisco because of rent control, they are not accurately showing what the size of these apartments are that apartment for as nasty it is, as it is is massive compared to what it would be ooh good good point i mean have you ever beep, stayed beep, have, have beep. you guys ever Andrew is stayed an in economist
1: new york? <laughs> have you guys ever stayed in new york i have yes in queens <sighs> i might add but it was really nice so uh, my, my experience of <laughs> queens is really different than this part of queens <laughs> Friends, when they show this massive apartment,
2: you're like, "Yeah."
1: Well, I actually asked one of my friends, and who lives in Queens now. I I said, "My perception of Queens is very different from this movie. Is this in any way even remotely accurate?" And Queens, first of all, he said, is the largest borough of New York, so it, it has a lot of variation in it. And particularly, he did mention. In the '80s and late '70s, that New York did have neighborhoods that weren't so nice. And while he personally wasn't alive in there, then he does know people who were around at that point in time. And New York was not a happy place. And I did watch a documentary on the Ramones, one of my favorite bands, and they grew up in Queens, and it was a rough neighborhood. There were drug dealers around. There were thieves. There were people fighting in the streets, and you had to be tough. And so. Uh, even though this is not at all Queens today. So if anybody's watching this movie gets an idea that Queens is this way, it's a much happier city than it was then. So,
2: Well, everywhere is safer now. We have cell phones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what Cameras everywhere. And one last piece of uh, set design that I got to talk about is the McDowell's restaurant. This is actually a Wendy's that they had closed down for renovation. So um, <laughs> they, they used it. And this is pretty funny, but uh, the McDonald's corporate headquarters was called and okayed for this. You know, they cleared it and everything like that. But uh, I guess some of the local franchise owners drove by and got really mad and were yelling and saying they're going uh, to get a lawyer and sue them for everything they have. And they were taking photographs and threatening them. And so uh, they had not uh, gotten the word out to the local McDonald's managers. <laughs> the
2: owners of the franchises. That's yeah.
1: right. And so if I had been the director, I would have been like, no, see, I've got the Golden Arcs. This is a McDowell's. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I just want to say one last thing on that, Russ. Yeah, go ahead. Could you imagine if they brought back the Arc Deluxe? <laughs> i love it. That this is good. coming.
0: This is coming from the guy that is going to be perpetually addicted to the McRib when and if it is available.
2: Oh, how I feel about McDonald's is best put by <laughs> Go ahead. Because that's, that's when they bring out the McRib here every year. I'm gone till November.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right so what do you guys think about the wardrobe and costumes we got a lot of very uh, amazing pieces in the dance scene this is the one that really jumps off the page at me what do you guys think about the the wardrobe and your takeaways
0: oh my favorite or i shouldn't say my favorite quote but one of my favorite quotes from the is that velvet <laughs> he's rubbing on the like lion skin <laughs> yeah he's wearing like a lion uh, <laughs> scarf It's like, oh, is that Bella? (laughs) He's like... (laughs) Fantastic uh, facial
2: expression on James Earl Jones.
1: Yeah, so uh, Andrew, any thoughts on the makeup or wardrobe?
2: Yeah, well, uh, so on the wardrobe side, I think that it's kind of hard to address the wardrobe without mentioning the fact that this movie made a huge amount of money in 1988 America, which is you know, predominantly white and let's just be clear, white people and black people dress differently. Like that's not, I'm not saying anything weird or crazy, right? That's fair. Correct. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting is that the movie discusses in that same class aspect, the different variations of dress in the African-American community between the upper middle class versus the middle. You know what I mean? Like I like they they still have the same issues that white people do regarding how we dress regarding class issues. And that's what my big takeaway from the, you know, the outfits and the soul glow. Right. Uh, All these different things, because soul glow is something that none of us understand. Right.
1: I had curly hair. I could use soul glow. I could pull the jerry curls off. Russ actually, r- Russ, you you actually had a
0: very close to that hairstyle in high school.
1: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
2: OK, so uh, maybe that wasn't the best example. But,
3: uh, <laughs>
2: uh, but I really do appreciate some of the different clothing styles. What it reminds me of is uh, I was at a mall in uh, Prince George County in Maryland, which is the Uh, It's the most affluent, one of the most affluent African-American communities in the United States. And so I was the and I was the Eddie Murphy at that mall, but it's a really nice mall. It's just that the clothing is explicitly for the um, African-American community that lives there. And so the clothes are different. And I think that this movie does a pretty good job of showing that in that place in time
1: oh that's that's a good point point. and arsenio in his interviews that he was talking about making of coming to america was saying that he and eddie would have to sit in a chair for hours with straws up their noses while they had the makeup applied to them and they said uh you know you get really uncomfortable in those chairs and stuff so uh there was a lot of work to make these guys look like completely other people. That's why they got nominated for an Oscar. I mean, it really is impressive work on there. And the different wardrobes that they give these different characters are a big part of that. I really like the barbershop guys. You get their rugged nature by what they're wearing. And I mean, Clarence is such a bombastic character who, I mean, he wears this really weird shirt that like changes from stripes to polka dots back to like white and then brown. And then like, it's the strangest shirt you'll ever see. And it's so perfect that Clarence is wearing it so and the other one that i thought was really interesting was uh just the african wedding was just everything was full of colors and then they had the dancers come in with the feathers and they did this amazing choreography uh it was really cool so
2: on that did it kind of remind you of black panther in a way i like i mean in a really positive way uh, in that like trying like so often in in america we have this real negative view of africa because we always see the, you know, Ethiopia really poor side. And that's just not what an entire continent is, right? And I think one of the reasons why Black Panther was so successful is it said, hey, like, let's try to celebrate the positive aspects of the culture. And like they do, there are spots where they have a lot of wealth and they've got really nice stuff, which is true. And I feel like that I saw a lot of parallels between coming to America and Black Panther, regarding like the wedding scene and the celebration of the beauty of the culture.
1: That's a good way to tie it to a current day movie, which is also nominated for several Oscars. We'll see how that does in Oscar season coming up. So, Brian, what'd you think about? Uh, they said we let's dress like real New Yorkers, and they come out of uh, they come out of a sports sporting <laughs> goods store with a Jets jacket and a, a uh, Mets jacket, and they've got 800 buttons <laughs> pinned on them.
0: So I feel like the wardrobe for them being real, quote, unquote, New Yorkers is probably fairly accurate for someone coming to America in the quotes of like, oh, he said it. He said it. But it's one of those things that, you know, you see a certain image and their dressing up that way would be the equivalent of someone coming to LA for the first time and feeling like they need a thong and roller skates so they're just taking it to the polar extreme of sure some people do dress that way but it's it's just one of those things where they're they're harping on a stereotype you know people would take to the extreme
1: Let's talk about the soundtrack here a little bit. Uh, so we talked about She's Your Queen To Be. This is a great song. Uh, Andrew, what do you love about this acapella moment where uh, he talks about being able to uh, completely free of infection used at your discretion and just ridiculous lines in this song?
2: See, I didn't even hear the words so really? much as, I mean, yes, I did, but his it's his performance. Don't you ever hear somebody singing and you don't really even care so much what the words are? You're just like, I just want to hear that person sing all the time.
0: No, That's... I know. I, I, I'm a I'm a horrific lyricist. Like the first thing I hear in a song is what they're saying.
2: I mean, don't get me wrong. We could sit down and analyze those lyrics and I would totally think it's fantastic. But you're asking what I like got from it at the time and what I'll get from it the next time I watch don't you just like that dude can sing
1: so an interesting one i see on this is the south african band that sings during the opening credits uh, lady blacksmith black mambazo is the same band that appears on paul simon's grammy award-winning album graceland from a few years earlier and that they received worldwide recognition on that so uh here they perform the lion sleeps tonight which is a cover at the beginning of the movie So, Brian, what do you think about the super 80s music? Uh, uh, For me, it was uh, nails on a chalkboard, especially as the credits roll, and, like, you got pop, 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 bang, bang. We're coming to America. Uh,
0: There are uh, positives and negatives to take away from 80s music. Um, I'm not in any way, shape, or form throwing the entire decade under this movie, but they did not pick, uh, I mean... It's an 80s comedy using coming to America is a little on the nose but sure but it's not exactly like they pulled out the best of the best for you know what they're what they're playing here they're they're making a joke out of it much in the same way that like hot tub time machine does it's not that they're they're grabbing on to the best of the 80s they're grabbing onto the jokes of the 80s
1: I I actually thought one other thing I want to talk about the soundtrack was Randy Watson and his performance with Sexual Chocolate, uh, the which. Is, <laughs> sorry, I can't say it with a straight face. Um,
2: <laughs> no, we understand. You, you, like, you know, you wish you'd been Sexual Chocolate, not an architect. Go
1: ahead. But uh, the, I wish the lyrics had been a little funnier. He, like he nails the soulful lounge singer kind of uh, mode so well, and he gets the mannerisms. But actually, if you listen to the lyrics again, there's nothing that funny in them. And I kind of thought in the same way that they did She's Your Queen to be and had some ridiculously obtuse lines in there, I kind of thought it would be funny if Randy Watson had gotten a little bit of of that in there. And I love the hecklers in there. It's like, that boy can sing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You crazy. He's like, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm.
1: He's real good at being terrible. (laughs) (sighs) so look for this Andrew are are there any fun moments that you want to point out yeah I actually
2: think that the funnest moment is uh, Arsenio Hall as the ugly woman I don't like that terminology but when uh, Arsenio Hall as a woman is hitting on Eddie Murphy, he then says, or she then says, I'm into the group thing. And the look on our CDO Hall's face of being hit on by a woman that look is, is him, but the idea is it's supposed to be a woman that looks like him. He sells it. Like, I don't know how many takes they took to get that, but I legitimately believe like, re- I like paused and rewatched it. Like I went back and rewatched it that the look on his face is the look that any guy would have when you're like, okay, I've seen a chick who kills before, like looked like one of my friends. Like it happens, you know, like if you've got a buddy, his sister's face might look a little bit like his. But when you have a chick that looks like you hitting on your buddy and then say, Ooh, let's do a group thing the look on his face was real like that's what i imagined somebody would actually experience and that's part of the reason why i love arsenio hall in this movie uh
1: the good one brian look for this mine was going to be the two homeless guys but i will <laughs> say this if you watch closely
0: during the cubic junior scene he doesn't actually ever cut any of his hair So it's actually funny that if they cut out a scene where he can't pay for it,
1: they didn't actually cut any of his hair in the first place. I have one like that that's not necessarily what I was going to go with, but uh, Daryl also cheers for both teams in the basketball game. It just really drove me nuts. Like the white team scores and he goes, yeah! And then like the red team scores, he's like, in your face! I'm like, what? He's just like, yay, a basket! Yay, another team scored a basket! Yay, another
3: basket!
2: Is It's not that he has a rooting interest in either team. He is somebody who particularly values offense in basketball. So when he sees a good (laughs) offensive play, he roots for that. Doesn't he seem like the kind of guy that when you play basketball with, that he would be a ball hog?
1: Definitely. So another interesting uh, makeup story here is uh, uh, Eddie would dress up as Saul on the set and would totally like to mess with people. Like He would meet the head of uh, Paramount Studios and John Lannis would be like, hello, this is Saul. And the guy's like, yeah, so what? And like he'd be messing with him and talking to him as in this old Jewish man. is like, oh, who's the man in this movie? Eddie Murphy? I don't like him. He's a very vile man. He uses very vulgar language. I don't like him. He's no good. He's no good. And, like, he's like, who is this guy? And then Eddie would, like, start cracking up in his, you know, awesome laugh. And then he'd be like, oh, my gosh, is that Eddie Murphy in there? And like, he's like, yep. And so Eddie had a real fun time in these characters. Uh, another one that he did when he was Randy Watson, he went up to John Amos, who was Lisa's father and uh, his boss in the movie. But the, he goes up to actor John Amos uh, dressed up in that makeup. And he came up to him asking him. He's like, what do you do here? And he's like, I'm an actor and uh you know he goes uh you know who was in your movie i don't know i've never heard of you john amos and he goes eddie murphy goes oh he's a good actor he's a good actor why have i never heard of you though and he gets a little more aggressive and he's like confrontational. He's like i don't think you really belong here like should we get a security guard like i don't think you belong on this lot and like john amos is getting mad and he goes like look here and then like eddie starts cracking up again and like and then like john John's just said, like, I started belly laughing. This guy, he totally had me. I did not realize this was Eddie Murphy. And so, Eddie, <laughs> there, there are several stories like this where Eddie would just totally get people in his makeup. Okay,
2: that's 100- so that's 100% of what I would do, too. So remind me real quick, John Amos, what else is, what, what do we know him from outside of this movie?
1: So let's see, IMDb definitely has him under Die Hard 2. Lockup, Good Times. Um, He definitely has an episode in 30 Rock. I definitely recognize him from that. Um, Man, I don't know beyond that.
2: I'll have to check it out. I, I, uh, I know
1: him from something. Another really great look for this moment occurs for me when i i had happened to see crocodile dundee 2 on tv about maybe three weeks ago and i got sucked in as we were talking about coming america you catch 15 minutes here catch 15 minutes there and i ended up watching most of the movie and so when we came to watch coming to america i was like man This movie has a lot in common with that. They're both made at the end of the 80s. They're both made in 88. And turns out they even came out less than a month apart. One's at the end of Mm -hmm. May, the other's in June. So Crocodile Dundee 2 did come out right before Coming to America, but Coming to America, like, thrashed it in the box office. And... There's a lot of similarities, but i got to say this movie is a lot better than Crocodile Dundee 2, which I actually enjoy Crocodile Dundee 2, but Crocodile Dundee 2 is playing off of stereotypes of like, oh, I'm an Australian and this guy's a cross-dresser and he's hitting on me and I don't know what's going on or, oh, that's a black guy and I don't come into contact with American black guys. This movie is about a man from a land far away coming here trying to you know, fall in love. In this case, Crocodile Dundee comes and follows the woman that he already knows from Australia and wanting to, you know, take her back home with him. Whereas, you know, Coming to America has so much more going for it in terms of the multiple characters and all the other things that we've been talking about here. But it's a very interesting compare and contrast, and they happened very close to the same time with each other. So
2: I would argue that Coming to America will stand up much better through the test of time than most comedies of the last 20 years.
1: I do like the end subway scene of Crocodile Dundee too. It's very sweet. So um, where everybody's like crammed in the subway. So, but anyway,
0: Crocodile Dundee is another movie that the sequel is better than the original.
1: Uh, I certainly see it on TV more. So uh, my, 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 for whatever reason, I merged both of them into the same movie until I sat down and watched it again. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm coming in the second half of this movie. And then I was sitting there for about an hour and a half thinking I was like, how long is this movie again? And Mary, uh, you know, told me, she's like, like, you're thinking of the first movie that has like, really? I thought this was the first movie. She goes, no. Yep. Oh, I had, I I had something
2: I wanted to say uh, regarding coming to America is one of the reasons why I think it's, it did so well box office wise. You, you guys are all familiar with the Mount Rushmore concepts, right? Yes. So for me, when it comes to stand up comedians, the Mount Rushmore is Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin. I would argue that this is the most successful movie from one of the Mount Rushmore people, in that like he was in control of this, as we've stated earlier, right? This wasn't trading places. This was his idea, right? And I would I think that's part of the reason is he's one of the greatest comedians the world's ever seen.
1: Uh, Definitely in the 80s, for sure. Like, he might have been on top of it all in the 80s, so.
2: No, 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 no. I'm saying we, like, his stuff, have you watched his his stand-ups now? They still hold up. You ain't got no ice cream, because you ain't got no money, because your mama's on the welfare. Like, it's hilarious. It still holds
1: up today. Definitely. For sure. And, I mean, you're right. It, It definitely does. And
0: I got McDonald's
2: McDowell's <laughs> <laughs>
0: would have been funnier had, had, had Eddie Murphy raw come out after that, which I don't think it did. I think it was like 83 <laughs> versus 88, but <laughs> had Eddie Murphy raw and he said, I got McDowell's that would have been hilarious.
2: So
1: how does this movie affect you, Andrew?
2: I'll bring you back to the quote you kept mentioning in terms of, him wanting to find somebody that loves him for him. Yes. That's kind of the flip side because in many of the movies it's the woman wanting to find a man that loves her for her. And it's a it's it's not necessarily the norm to see a guy expressing his feelings that way and wanting romantic love in that way. In a, but it's a really positive message. So I think it, in that sense, I, I would say it's probably been a large influence on me in terms of, you know, how I search out my life. So
1: that's high praise. Yeah, and that, that's a good, that's a, that is an excellent point, too. Uh, uh, Brian, how does this movie affect you?
0: I miss watching movies like this when I watch them the first time because when I watch this the first time, it was just a funny movie. Like there was no racial connotation. I just got to watch a movie that was funny people being funny. And I do feel like today you have to add addendums in to how you view and you know what what you talk about with movies, instead of just having the enjoyment of funny people being funny. So it was just one of those things where I got to watch it and be like, man, that's obviously a different movie than I was used to based on the fact that I was watching it on television. But I don't know. It, it, it made me miss a little bit of the uh, ignorance of youth.
1: I like it. That's that's another really good point too. And I totally
2: love what you just said there about you just enjoyed it because it's the same idea with The Cosby Show is you weren't sitting there going, what's the color of their skin? You were just enjoying the skill of these entertainers telling their stories and entertaining you and we weren't so worried about that because we we went hey if you're good you're gonna make us laugh Eddie Murphy makes us laugh yeah huge
0: fan
1: like you said he does a great job of pursuing a, or he he plays a character who is he's a noble character who wants you know, his intentions are good and his heart's in the right place and so that's a positive role model so i mean like you said uh it's just these are good characters so for me this movie actually reminds me of when i go into work every day i have a really good friend uh who is from china and he's from a completely different world of china so he's from like western china it's not as uh it's not necessarily beijing that you think of and I mean, their house is heated by like fire that goes up under the floors, and they sleep on bags of rice. And, you know, like they may not have uh, sewage. Like somebody comes around with like a bucket and carries away the raw sewage down to the river. Like it's a different world that he is from. And so often he brightens our day up by just taking joy in the little things that we do. Are so jaded on or don't fully appreciate, and so it's it's really fun to have somebody like that. You can see your cultural differences and their cultural differences, and plus you get these great fish out of water comments. Like, you know, someone will be like, ah, "That's what she said," and he'll go like, "Look, look at you blankly and go like, Who is she, and why did she say that?" <laughs> so what 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 are his thoughts
0: on Monster Shark rallies? <laughs> i don't know
1: man i just uh, uh i i gotta ask him on that one but i mean he's he's all the time confused by stuff that you know he's uh he, he does and, and, he, and he has no shame like somebody will be like somebody will make a reference or whatever it's like ha is like is like you look like a pimp he'll be like what is a pimp
2: <laughs> well idioms are the hardest thing to learn in a language right for sure yeah uh, so getting to to that idea, one of the things I love about living in Long Beach, not Palm Springs, is that <laughs> Long Beach is the most diverse large country, large city in the United States of the 50 largest cities in the country. It is the most diverse and it's the only one that does not have a predominant ethnicity.
1: Interesting. Well, guys, I think it's time to do what I love to do most on this show. How about some superlatives? You ready? I'm down for it. Andrew MVP. Samuel Jackson. Are you for real? Oh
2: yeah. Watch that scene again. Okay. He steals <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> All right. You watch that scene instant for instant. That's what we're talking about. It's our Manny Pacquiao, pound for pound, right?
1: Uh, most valuable Jackson. Okay. <laughs> I th- I thought he was being sarcastic, but uh, Brian, we were
0: all is- excited for the rest of his career.
1: Uh, Br- Brian MVP.
0: MVP is every character that Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall played that weren't their main characters.
1: Okay, uh, for me, I'm just gonna go with flat out Eddie Murphy. You know, you know, the helped create this, multiple characters, great performer, had the charisma to make Hakeem. A simple character, really enjoyable and likable. And that makes this movie work. So, best supporting actor?
2: Augustine Neal Hall.
1: Yeah. Brian?
0: Gonna go straight James Earl Jones here. Um, I love The King. Like, being as intelligent as possible, but then also being as aloof as possible, was a big thing in this movie.
1: There's a fine line between love and nausea. (laughs) I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. no my, my my best supporting actor is Arsenio Hall, but I do want to give a nod to John Amos. He was really enjoyable as uh, Lisa's dad.
0: I also like Paul Bates, man. Paul Bates. Okay. Heads okay, to okay. Paul Bates.
1: Well, uh, you could go there and head and Jim, which is what we come to next. Head and Jim. Oh, what about
2: Lisa, the the actress playing her? I thought she had a really tough role to play because she is pretty. And she's supposed to be smart and she's she's put in kind of a tough situation acting wise because we're supposed to understand why she likes Eric LaSalle beyond just the money, because if she just liked him for the money, then she wouldn't be the type of guy that Akeem would want. Right. Yes. So she's
1: like, I thought she did a pretty darn good job. Sherry Headley uh, uh, in the role of Lisa there. and uh, I, I am with you. She's pretty and she's got personality and she does a good job. They looked at casting at one point, uh, Vanessa Williams in her part, which she certainly is beautiful. But uh, I am really glad they didn't go that route because I think you're right. She has a lot of warmth and uh, depth to her that I, I think she does a good job in this role.
2: I thought the scene where she best epitomized it is when he's going back and forth outside her office mopping. Yeah. And then when he's, I mean, he's trying to talk to her and she's clearly like, I'm doing work, you know, but she's just not a rude person. And so when my, like, at the end, end of the scene, she still calls him by his name, you know, it's not like, Oh, have a nice day. She's like, you're like I think I don't remember if she said "nice to meet you, Akeem. or you know. Well, he but just got she, done saying it's, it's like
1: when you think of garbage, you think of Akeem. But she still did
2: reiterate it, like and like the, she had that warmth, that smile on her face, and I thought she really killed it, given a pretty difficult role where she could have just been kind of a wet blanket, and I feel like she tried to
1: add some depth to it. When no one else around you say "baby," I love you. Brian, who is your hidden gem?
0: I'm going to go with Samuel L. Jackson on this one just because (laughs) if you just, if you only knew what that career was going to give you later, wow. Like, this is one of the things that I love most about watching older movies and seeing bit part actors in small roles because I'm like, this is going to be epic one day. And the only thing that's than seeing somebody that is well-known in a smaller role in an older movie is actually seeing an actor flourish from square one. That's, that's the fun part about watching movies like this is when you go deep into the roster and you find someone who just destroyed it later on.
1: Uh, For my hidden gem, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy as Mortimer and Randolph Duke returning from the movie Trading Places. Andrew, what about you and your hidden gem?
2: Akeem's mom has got it
0: going on.
1: Oh, that's a nice pick. I thought that
2: given the way that the story works, she's actually the person who really helps drive the plot.
1: I like it. So, if you had to recast somebody in this, and who would you put in their place, uh, what one person would you recast? Andrew.
2: Oof. The sister of Lisa.
1: Yep. Allison Dean? Yeah. Or she plays Patrice, but yes, uh, Allison Dean.
2: If it was cast with somebody who, given his preference set, maybe was a touch more appealing initially that it might have worked better i'm not saying she's a bad actress it's just probably the weakest
1: spot i actually picked the same actress for that matter and uh i put uh denitra vance in there she was on saturday night live in the 85 to 86 season where everybody got uh, slashed afterwards but uh she's uh she can she can do bubbly ditzy and a number of other things and uh, she might be a little bit old for the part, but I th- I like her for this. Brian, who is your uh, re- recast? My
0: recast is the dad. I would hands down plug in Richard Pryor. I think that having him as the dad would just play off Eddie Murphy so well. Like I, I feel like there may have been some. Not necessarily script rewrites, but some ad-lib stuff that really would have benefited this movie, where it just, it, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of Richard Pryor that it, it just would have been a, a really funny dichotomy to have him play the mom, or the dad.
1: Well, Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor do get together and work together in Harlem Nights, but uh, general consensus is that movie was not what you wanted. What would your best shot of the movie be, Andrew? It's the... Uh...
2: The difference between watching that movie on TBS.
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Okay.
2: <laughs> or not.
1: Okay. Okay. The bath scene. Okay. Um, Brian, uh, best shot.
0: This is going to be a weird thing. It, it just, it was something that always kind of like tickled me, but it's when the, the King comes in to their old room and you've got them sitting or the uh, landlord sitting in the, uh, jacuzzi with a cigar and they're Aww. having they're they're having that interchange and i i just i, I always liked how that was shot just from a, a a standpoint of you have someone who's royalty being told to enter a domicile and the person who stays seated the whole time is the dirty landlord yeah
1: yeah that, that's a good point
0: that is that that has always been one of those um, without, you know, mixing terms here, one of those trading places parts that I always really enjoyed.
1: And the the camera there is like nice and low at his level, looking up at James Earl Jones, who's just like mad at the whole situation. Yeah, that's a good yep. one. Dance number, for me, is the best one. And there's a particular shot where the camera's behind them on the uh, throne looking back at the crowd of dancers. Uh, Not quite on axis, slightly off axis. It's a great angle, and the dance, the choreography there's amazing, and great job on that. So best scene, Andrew.
2: The culmination when Minister McDowell is, wait, wait a second, you're saying my daughter's not good enough? You know, when he starts to get, like, angsty? Oh, yeah, about this sit- yeah. I thought that was fantastic.
1: Oh, that's a really good moment. You're right. for sure. Brian, best scene. I
0: think the best scene for me was when they both walk out of their apartment building and all their luggage is gone, and then literally <laughs> everybody around them is
1: wearing their stuff. And like, the, gold, the, gold, the the toothbrush. I'm beginning yeah, to suspect that these are the people who have stolen our luggage. <laughs> I love that scene. The whole thing.
0: Hey, man, you guys want a butt? He's already incorporated his coat to be able to hold and just dis- like display various gold-plated toiletries. I love that entire scene.
1: Mm, that is a good one uh, for me. I like the zany nature of when uh, Cleo McDowell uh, or Mr. McDowell puts on and or he's entertaining Akeem and Lisa. Meanwhile, he's also called Daryl over to the house uh, and didn't cancel him, so uh, Daryl's trying to S- ring the doorbell, and he's running back and forth, <laughs> and like, he enters the door and just closes it on his face immediately says nothing, and Daryl's like, what's up? And he rings the doorbell again and then like, Uh, you know, clear. I mean, like, uh, Mr. McDowell's like one minute, and he runs back to the door, and like he's like, "Look, she's not interested. Don't you understand?" Slam. (laughs) Like, and Daryl tries a third time and rings the doorbell, and then like he falls down up the steps. He's so frustrated, and then he like, "Sick him, Donnie!" And like a little poodle runs out, like going after him. Just great, (laughs) great scene. A lot of catastrophe. I, 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 everything's coming to a head. Uh, for me, this is my scene in the movie. So All
0: of that drove my dog nuts. I'm trying to watch this, and every time that dog came up, he was like, Rrr, and I was like, nope, nope, it's okay. <laughs> it's on television. Don't
2: worry about
1: it. Change one thing, Andrew.
2: The opening sequence. It's too long.
1: Okay, okay. I remember you saying that before. Good. I figured this might be coming. So, Brian, change one thing.
0: All of the zoom outs for landscaping of Zamunda.
1: Similar call, huh? For me, I'm actually going to add something. I want to add more bad things that happen to Simi so that like Hakeem's really loving this. You know, bad things happen to Simi along the way. So I wouldn't mind seeing him get into trouble on his own uh, while uh, while, uh, Hakeem's out getting uh, or going on a date and having a great time. I'd like to, something bad to happen to Simi so it just keeps getting worse and worse for him, more and more lopsided and it's disproportionate. Like, I'm in love and this is wonderful and the other guy's like, no, this really sucks. So <laughs> I'd like to make that juxtaposition even greater than they did. So, uh, Best quote of the movie, though. I don't think I have a good answer for that. Uh, Brian. The royal penis is
0: clean. That's
1: a, I, I, that's a strong one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, just, I, Especially since I'd never heard it. Like You have to understand that when I rewatched this movie, I had never heard that line, and I lost my stuff on that. Like, yeah. I was cracking up hard, and Jess was like, you haven't seen that? And I'm like, no, I've only ever watched this on cable. Yes. Okay, so
2: that would have been my answer, but I knew that's fries, so that's why I didn't say
1: Mine, Mine's going to be, freeze, you diseased rhinoceros pizzle. That
2: was <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Okay, so favorite quote. Every time we talk about boxing, every white <laughs> guy ever brings up Rocky Marciano. Nah. Yeah, yep. I like that. Because a lot. it's true. It's our. It's we as a white as a white male. We have nothing to stand on when it comes to
1: boxing, other than Rocky Marciano. Another couple <laughs> noteworthy lines worth bringing up here are, uh, Lisa. Lisa is falling in love with him, and uh, he's going and dancing with her, and they they're about to kiss, and she goes. What about Patrice? And Hakeem goes, "I'm not interested in Patrice." <laughs> what about Daryl? I'm not interested in Daryl either. <laughs> also, a good one. That's that's fantastic. Um, and then another really great one. But this is just Hakeem, like this. Is, this is again, like this. This feels like something my friend w- uh, from China would like do. He goes, "Sir, did you happen to catch the professional football contest on television last mm. night?" No, I didn't, Hakeem. Oh, sir, the Giants of New York took on the Packers of Green Bay. And at the end, the Giants <laughs> triumphed by kicking an oblong ball made of pigskin through the big H. It was a most ripping victory. Boy, S- if you want to stay
0: working here, lay off the drugs. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and then uh, another one, which is a uh, part of the expletive here is, uh,
3: good morning, my neighbors. And then somebody goes, hey, I you!" And he goes, yes, yes. F you do a
1: lot of good lines. Comedies always have good quotes, so yes. Uh, we've come full circle and it's been a long circle, but what would you rate this movie on a five star scale, Andrew? 4.8. Okay, well, I'll, I'll allow some decimals, that's fine. Uh, Brian, I'm gonna
0: give it a solid four. Um, it, it is a at it's hard. It's an amusing movie that has some really hysterical parts. But it wasn't exactly one of those like side splitters that I was laughing the entire time.
1: I, I'm actually going to follow suit with Brian on this one and go forward because I really enjoy this movie. It's just fun. It makes me happy. It's not like hilarious gut butt or sorry gut busting throughout the whole movie. And there's a lot of warmth and just sweetness to the movie that I really do enjoy. And so it's got a lot of heart and that helps. But um, for me, that is just a very, very simple story. It is somewhat predictable. And the ending, actually, I don't love the ending on this movie. As I mentioned earlier, I don't like the fact that they leave, go all the way to Africa. And then his parents basically bring Lisa over. I, I just didn't it's like it. Yeah, it's a twist. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I saw that twist coming and I just, I would have preferred something more sincere. I honestly wish she had like said yes on the subway. I don't know. I, I for me, small these are small things. But uh, is anyway, it, is it
0: is it okay. completely outlandish for me to call this a rom com?
1: It it is,
0: which is perfect timing for
1: Valentine's Day. So,
0: like, I just like here's the thing. I've seen some serious comedies that that slayed me. Like, like it hurt me inside because I couldn't laugh anymore. So in the department of what this really fills in it's a rom-com that is for guys.
2: They did like a survey around 2000, remember in 2000 they were just doing surveys of everything like what's the greatest book of all time, the most influential book, stuff like that. They did a really solid survey and for the US of what is the most romantic Movie to women. Do you know what number one was? Coming to America? Officer and a gentleman. Hmm. There's only about 15 minutes of that movie that's romantic. The rest of the movie is a guy movie. I would argue Coming to America has a lot of similarities. Sure, it's a rom-com, but there's only about like 15 minutes of romantic. The rest of the movie is comedy. Well, no,
0: the whole thing is about a guy trying to woo a girl.
1: Interestingly, you guys are talking about romantic comedies because it's now time to pick our movie for next week. And being that we're so close to Valentine's, uh, it's time to go and try a chick flick for the person you love. And so we asked our guest of next week, Chad Robinson, Brian's good friend. His wife helped select three movies for us. Uh, So it's going to be option one, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days from 2003. In this, Benjamin Barry is an advertising executive ladies' man who is to win a campaign. He has to make a bet to make any woman fall in love with him in 10 days. Annie Anderson covers the How to Beat the Composure magazine and is assigned to write an article on How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. They meet shortly thereafter, and the bet is made. And option number two, 10 Things I Hate About You in 1999. A pretty popular teenager can't go out on a date until her ill-tempered older sister does. Option number three. Oh, taming of the true. by the way. Also true. Uh, option number three. 27 dresses from 2008. After serving as a bridesmaid 27 times, a young woman wrestles with the idea of standing by her sister's side as her siblings marries the man she is secretly in love with.
0: I think we'll go with uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days.
1: That's right. This one's for the ladies, so... Uh, n- nothing nothing says valentine's day like three guys talking about a chick flick so <laughs> uh, so anyway thank you so much andrew for joining us we really enjoyed having uh, you on
2: thank you for having me and i look forward to coming on in the
1: future yes and brian uh thanks so much as always to all of you, Lord, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe to us. Please rate to uh, rate us on iTunes. Those ratings help us grow the show and find new viewers, uh, and those reviews help us find new new listeners. Also, if you listen on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, give us a favorite, give us a like, spread the love. Uh, and then also, give us a like on Facebook. We're getting closer to that 100 mark, and we would love to have that 100 mark eclipsed. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, want to be on the show, write us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? With
0: Who Framed Roger Rabbit, good old Kathleen Turner, Jessica Rabbit quote, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way.